Lisa Marie Young went out for a friend's birthday in 2002. She was last seen leaving a party to get something to eat. Though the RCMP waited months to begin ground searches, the Cloquiet First Nation showed up in Nanaimo, B.C. to search for her immediately. But 19 years later, Lisa remains one of the hundreds of missing Indigenous women in North America. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back. I appreciate everyone who listens, particularly when I cover unsolved cases like this one that need the public's attention to bring in more tips and more leads. It was an advocate for this case, Cindy Hall, who brought it to me. This case is also covered in the first season of the podcast, Island Crime. Cindy suggested that I listen to that podcast when it came out, and I did listen to it early on. Normally, I would just not cover a case that I heard about first on a long-form podcast. It's just not how I roll. But Cindy has been such a huge supporter of my MMIW episodes, and the goal with this episode is to get more awareness to the case, certainly not to piggyback off of Island Crime's amazing work. Island Crime was one of the sources for this episode. I can't pretend I didn't hear something on a podcast episode that I've already listened to. I can't say this is unconfirmed by the RCMP when Laura Palmer, the journalist behind Island Crime, had them confirm it to her on tape. Laura Palmer is journalism goals, and Island Crime is podcast goals. Even hearing the case from me here, it's no replacement for listening to Island Crime. You hear firsthand from the people that I've mentioned here, and the connection you will feel to the case after listening to Island Crime is just something I could not even attempt to replicate. I will leave the info on Island Crime in the description box so that you can go listen. We are talking about the disappearance of Lisa Marie Young. Lisa grew up in Nanaimo, British Columbia, which is on Vancouver Island. Neither of her parents were from Nanaimo. They were both transplants. Her father, Don, was from Ontario, and he moved across the country to Vancouver Island when he was around 14. After high school, he moved to Nanaimo. Lisa's mother, Joanne, belonged to Colloquiat First Nation. The Colloquiat are from the area of present-day Tofino, which is also on Vancouver Island. This is the Pacific side of the island, though, so it's across from Nanaimo and about a three-hour drive away. The Kulukwet are not a singular people, but rather a confederation of several smaller tribes. Pre-colonization, they were independent of each other, living and interacting like any nations who live next door would. They would work together and ally themselves as needed, but were largely independent. After colonization, when they had to be structured under the structure the Canadian government put into place, the colloquial First Nation was what the band was called. They are also organized under the Nuchanak Tribal Council, along with several other First Nations on Vancouver Island. In 2002, which is the time period Lisa went missing, the Cloquet First Nation had around 
800 members, and they now number approximately 1,150. Joanne's family was incredibly connected to the nation, not just culturally, but also politically. Her father, Moses Martin, has been the elective chief for 13 consecutive terms. The colloquiate have hereditary chiefs as well, but Moses Martin continues to be the elected chief as of the time of this recording. Moses is probably best known for his activist work against logging, known as the War of the Woods. In the early 1980s, a logging company intended to come in and clear-cut something like 90% of the cedar on Mears Island. When the loggers arrived, they found a large protest and a blockade of people, both indigenous people but also environmental activists connected to organizations like Greenpeace. Moses invited the loggers onto the island but told them to leave their chainsaws on their boats because the island was not a tree farm. The protesters eventually won a court injunction that halted logging until the concerns of the indigenous people in the area could be addressed. This took years and another massive protest in the early 1990s before it was resolved. No clear-cutting would happen on Mears Island. All logging on the island had to be done in an ecological way. The area was, in 2014, classified as a tribal park, which gave the colloquiate even more control over it. The mayor of Tofino said something in 2019 that I really liked. She basically said that the War of the Woods and the tribal park opened a conversation about commodifying everything. Just because you can make money off of something, you don't necessarily have to. There is value in that thing simply existing. So Joanne grew up in this politically active family, but she moved away from the area to the east coast of Vancouver Island for work, like a lot of young people do. Nanaimo is the second largest city on the island, and it is really just behind the first largest city. The population currently is about 90,000 people. Joanne and Don met while they were both living in Nanaimo, and they were pretty young, late teens, early 20s, and they fell in love. They married and soon had three kids in three years, with Lisa being born first in May 1981, followed by two brothers. Lisa was from the start an independent person. She learned to crawl and walk very young. She was determined to do things her way. And as she got older, it earned her the nickname from a family friend, Bossy Lisa, which was definitely said more in jest than some type of serious admonishment. Lisa grew up camping with her family and doing all sorts of outdoor adventures with her brothers. She was very protective of them, particularly the youngest who had special needs. When Lisa hit her teen years, she brought all that confidence and strong-willed nature with her. And that led to Joanne and Lisa really butting heads a lot. Eventually, it was decided that space was what the family needed, and Lisa moved into a foster home while she finished up high school. What Lisa brought into that foster home was all that big sister energy. There were two younger girls in the home, but they actually weren't much younger than Lisa. She looked out for them. She made sure they knew they were loved. She celebrated their birthdays. 
And that's how Cindy, the advocate for Lisa's case I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, met Lisa. She knew one of Lisa's foster sisters. During high school, Lisa worked at McDonald's, and after she graduated, she worked there full-time as a manager. That is not an easy job to manage a fast food restaurant, but Lisa excelled at it. She was detail-oriented, high energy, and just really a people person. Lisa and a couple of friends ended up getting an apartment together when she was about 19, and this apartment happened to be right next door to her parents, Don and Joanne. I imagine this is really what the family needed to be close enough to reconnect after some tumultuous teen years, but still with Lisa having her independence. Don and Joanne got used to seeing Lisa pretty much every day. She would show up ready for a cup of coffee in the morning or to watch a hockey game with her dad in the evening. But in between these daily check-ins, Lisa was on the go. When she wasn't working, she was out with friends, she was out dancing, she was doing outdoor sports, she was rollerblading, she was going for a long walk. Whatever it was, Lisa was on the move. On Saturday, June 29th, 2002, 21-year-old Elisa Young showed up at her parents' home and sat down to have a beer and watch a hockey game with her dad. Lisa loved sports, particularly hockey and basketball. She had a long-term goal of becoming a sports announcer. But in the meantime, she had quit McDonald's, she tried her hand at bartending for a bit, and she had just recently gotten a new job at a call center that she was set to start in a couple of days. The career changes were all part of Lisa's plans to become financially secure, pursue her education, and also help her parents with her youngest brother, who would live at home into adulthood. She wanted to know that he would be okay even after their parents retired. And I think it's remarkable for a 21-year-old woman whose parents were barely in their 40s to be thinking that far ahead. So on this Saturday night, Lisa watched the game for a bit before she said she was heading out with some friends. Her parents made those parental comments about it being kind of late to be going out. It was already around 10 p.m. Not that 21-year-olds care about that sort of thing normally, but Lisa was actually moving into a new apartment the next day, and being out late the night before a big move just sounded like a bad idea. Lisa acknowledged the time, but she said she was going to go out anyway because it was her friend Dallas Hulley's 21st birthday. And while, sure, she normally would have stayed in due to moving the next day, she didn't want to miss the birthday celebration. Birthdays were very important to Lisa. So Lisa left her parents' apartment between 10 and 11 p.m. They don't know who she left with because they didn't see her get picked up or anything like that. The timeline going forward is going to be approximate for the most part because why? Because no one was sitting around looking at the clock, just like pretty much every other case we have covered. Lisa and her friends went to some clubs in downtown Nanaimo, which has been reported to be a pretty wild bar scene, at least at the time. One club they went to was, at the time, called The Jungle. It's had a few name changes since then. There are a lot of reports that Lisa had previously worked there as a bartender, 
But on Island Crime, the man who owned it said she actually worked at a different place that he also owned that was also right next door to the jungle called the Palace Hotel. Where exactly Lisa worked is only important to people like me who get caught up in the most mundane inconsistencies, but the important point is to say that Lisa was familiar with the downtown bar scene, not just because she was a 21-year-old, but because she had also worked there. The bars closed at 2.30 a.m., and the street ended up full of young people. The bar owners and the managers were always encouraging the crowds to disperse quickly, disperse before the RCMP comes and tells you to disperse, the usual after-closing scene. So Lisa, Dallas, and their friends were all trying to decide what to do next right there on the spot, knowing they have to make up their minds quickly. As they were talking, 27-year-old Christopher William Adair approached them. As they were talking, they all decided to go to a house party together, and Chris had a car, so he offered to drive. It has been inconsistently reported whether any of them knew Chris. A lot of reports are that he was a complete stranger to all of them. Lisa for sure did not know him. But I have to imagine someone in Lisa's group had to have at least known Chris Adair either as a friend of a friend or just from around town because they piled into his car to go to a party together without a lot of conversation ahead of time. It makes sense to me that someone in the wider circle was at least familiar enough that they were all open to hanging out with this person they didn't really know. That's just my opinion, unconfirmed. So Lisa, Dallas, and another male friend got into Chris's car, which was a 1980-something burgundy or maroon Jaguar with square headlights. Definitely not a common car in 2002. The group went to the first house party, they stayed a while, then they left for a second house party. No one was looking at their watch, so how long they stayed at each party has not been established. When time frames have been given, they don't actually fit with the times we know, the fixed points in the schedule, so we're not even going to try. Let's just say that between the two house parties, they were at both of them for a combined 30 to 45 minutes, probably, when Lisa said she was hungry. The hosts of the second party they were at, which was in the Cathars Lake area of Nanaimo, had food, but there wasn't anything significant Lisa could eat. Lisa had been a vegetarian since childhood, and vegetarians know that unless you want to eat chips and carrot sticks, there usually isn't a lot at parties for you. Chris Adair offered to give Lisa a ride to a nearby Subway restaurant, which was open 24 hours, so she could at least get a significant vegetable sandwich. Afterwards, he would either bring her back to the party or drop her off at home. Both have been reported as the plan. Lisa left with Chris in the Red Jaguar around 3 a.m. or possibly a little after. Lisa wasn't gone for too long when she started contacting friends. She texted her friend Dallas, who was still at the second house party, come get me, they won't let me leave. According to Dallas, there was also a phone call in which Lisa said she didn't know what was going on. She was sitting in a driveway on Bowen Road and the guy wouldn't bring her back. She sounded uncomfortable and she also sounded very annoyed. 
Bowen Road was not far from the house party, but she did not give an exact location like a house address. And it doesn't appear that Dallas asked who Lisa was referring to when she said, they won't let me leave. Because as far as Dallas would know at this point, she had just left with one man who was taking her to a sandwich shop. At some point in these communications, Dallas told Lisa to get out of the car and get a cab. Dallas was intoxicated, so he was not in what we would call a problem-solving mindset. He also wasn't alarmed enough to call for help on Lisa's behalf, and if Lisa tried to call emergency services from her cell phone, that is unknown. Some reporting also mentions that Lisa called a female friend as well in this time frame, but the RCMP have been very tight-lipped on the details of this case, so that is unclear. I imagine if Lisa was trying to get out of a bad situation, she probably did try to contact more than one person. Between these calls and texts, the final communication from Lisa that we know about came around 4 or 4.30 in the morning on Sunday, June 30th. A few hours later, Don and Joanne Young got up and going. They tried to call Lisa to talk more about the plans for moving day, but she did not answer. Knowing that she had gone out the night before and was probably sleeping in, they headed out to grab some breakfast. When they got back home, they called Lisa again, but still didn't get an answer. They first assumed she must be busy with packing or moving, though Don was supposed to help her transport her stuff, so they would have expected Lisa to reach out at some point. Then they talked to Lisa's roommate. She said she didn't know where Lisa was and that Lisa's things were all still in the apartment the way they were the night before. Lisa hadn't moved anything. So Joanne went over to Lisa's apartment and found her little personal phone book. She went down the list of Lisa's friends and family and coworkers, calling everyone until she ran out of people to call. She couldn't find anyone who had talked to Lisa since 4 or 4.30 a.m. when she was reaching out to Dallas, and no one knew where she was. At this point, Don and Joanne called the police. They were told, wait, 48 hours, she's probably just out with friends. They got a very different response when Joanne reached out to her family. They packed up and drove to Nanaimo immediately to start searching for Lisa alongside many of her friends. Even though they had been told to wait 48 hours to report her missing, the RCMP did send a police officer by their apartment to talk to them. He asked the usual questions. He got a picture of Lisa for his report. And then he told them that he worked weekends, so he would be off duty until Friday. So he told them to call him back then and check in. From Sunday, until Friday, they were supposed to wait. But they were not going to wait. Lisa's grandfather, Moses Martin, organized several men from the Cloquiet First Nation to travel to Nanaimo to search. They started with what they knew at the time. They knew the locations of the house parties, and then they eventually, through Dallas, learned about the mysterious Bowen Road driveway, 
so they started their searches there. Joanne and Don also went to the media. Everyone who has interviewed them over the years have said that Don and Joanne did not like being in the spotlight. They did not like being interviewed. It made them uncomfortable. But they did it anyway to find their daughter. They are, in a lot of ways, poster children for the effective use of the media in a missing persons case. They managed to get Lisa's case in the papers within days, even without the RCMP being fully on board with her missing persons case. Between their persistence in contacting the RCMP, her grandfather's searches, and the media attention, the case was put on the RCMP radar before the initial officer that said wait till Friday got back to work on Friday. Joanne told the Native Women's Association of Canada that although she pushed for media coverage, she also avoided the camera for a while. She was afraid her picture would cause prejudice to cloud public awareness about Lisa's case. Lisa looked, frankly, ethnically ambiguous, but Joanne looked indigenous, and she knew how stereotypes can drive people's perceptions. 2002 was long before the MMIW movement had any mainstream attention. Joanne knew the, oh, she's probably just out partying response indigenous families had gotten about missing loved ones for ages. She didn't want bigotry to impact Lisa's case. So she would do the interviews, everyone she could, but she resisted having her face on camera. It's heartbreaking that this had to even be a thought in Joanne's mind as she was looking for her missing child. Another thing the family did early on was they papered the entire town with missing posters. Don worked as a courier, and his co-workers were more than happy to help pass out and hang up these flyers while they were doing their runs. The family had, of course, heard from Dallas all about the man in the Burgundy Jaguar. Dallas did not know much about him, and the family did not think the RCMP was really trying that hard to find him. So Joanne went out looking for him. She asked around, figured out who he was, Christopher Adair, and then she found the car herself. By one report, Joanne actually showed up outside the home of the owner and photographed the car. The owner of the car was Geraldine Adair. She lived in Calaquam Beach, which is about 40 minutes up the coast from Nanaimo. Geraldine was the grandmother to Christopher Adair, the person known to be driving the car the night Lisa went missing. Geraldine was a real estate agent in the area, and her husband, Bill, had been an alderman and mayor of nearby Parksville, albeit 20 years before this. With the car and the driver being identified, the RCMP brought Chris and the car in. Reports are that it was anywhere from two to four weeks after Lisa went missing that this happened. While Chris was being questioned by the police, Joanne was brought into the interrogation room to speak to him. The hope was that an emotional plea for information from the mother of the missing daughter would appeal to Chris's compassionate side. According to Joanne, she was even encouraged to hug Chris. 
In the room, Joanne noticed a picture of Lisa was hanging up with the words murder, accident, and rape written on the whiteboard. While the meeting between the RCMP, Joanne, and Chris Adair has been confirmed by the RCMP on the Island Crime podcast, they didn't confirm the details as reported by Joanne. But she told a number of people about it, and her story remained consistent for years. And just because the RCMP is not commenting on it doesn't mean it didn't happen. And I completely believe Joanne in her recounting of what happened in that meeting. And according to Joanne, when asked to tell her what happened to Lisa, Chris told her, I can't, I'm sorry, I don't mean to disrespect your family, and then his voice trailed off. From what is out there, it sounds like the story Chris told the RCMP was simply that Lisa got out of the car. He didn't know what happened to her after that. The family was not told exactly where. Chris said Lisa was supposedly dropped off, which was frustrating since they were trying to search the areas where she had last been confirmed to be. This would be a key location for them to search, but that is also dependent on whether or not Chris was telling the truth. In addition to questioning Christopher Adair, the RCMP also searched the Jaguar. Reportedly, it had been cleaned, steam cleaned in fact, shortly before the search. The Jaguar was released back to the owner, Chris's grandmother, afterwards. What was or was not found has not been released, but Joanne said she was told there was no smoking gun, so to speak. But DNA analysis has come a long way since 2002. If swabs from that forensic search of the car have been kept, there may be more evidence available today than there was 19 years ago but we'll just add forensics to one of the many line items the RCMP is not commenting on. After the car was returned to the Adair family, it was sold. However, the description of it has been published again and again for 19 years. Even though they've identified the car and the driver, the RCMP wants witnesses who may have seen it the night Lisa went missing. If they could trace where the car was spotted it would give them more information on where to search. So knowing the name and the car, the family decided to make new missing persons posters that included the car and the name of the driver. They were hoping that would bring in more tips. They soon received contact from the RCMP that they can't put Chris's name up on flyers like that. There are stories out there that Chris Adair's grandmother threatened to sue people who tried to name him in relation to the case, and that the pressure to take down the flyers may have come from her or her husband, who were both fairly influential people in the area. The RCMP said if the Adair family put pressure on them or threatened them with a lawsuit, it would not have impacted their investigation. And that's an if someone tried to exert pressure on them. They have not said yes or no to questions directly about it. I am naming Chris Adair because the name is now public. Just last year, he was named by Paul Manley, who is the member of parliament representing Nanaimo. He said 
Chris Adair's name in a public speech. And it is just a fact that Chris Adair was the last known person to see Lisa before her disappearance. While Chris does have arrests both before and after Lisa's disappearance, we need to be clear that he has not been arrested, charged, or convicted for any crime in relation to Lisa's disappearance. He is simply the last person to see her and a witness, maybe a person of interest, but that's it. The media attention and these missing posters with or without Chris's name generated a lot of tips. Some went to the RCMP, but a lot went directly to the family. Not everyone coming forward was in a place in their life where they welcomed police scrutiny. This included people who used or sold drugs, as well as people with ties to biker gangs. Because of Nanaimo's location, it is somewhere that drugs are trafficked through. Google drug running Nanaimo, and you are going to get pages of articles going back literally decades. And with drug trafficking, you are going to get gangs. So the idea that Nanaimo has this underworld who is secretly contacting the family, that has legs. That's not far-fetched. But an issue with these tips was that a lot of them were very graphic, like horrifically so, describing what the caller believed happened to Lisa. So if you can only imagine being the parent of a missing woman and hearing about the absolute worst nightmare scenario of what happened to your child, and often without any preface or preparation, just a phone call, it would have been a lot for Don and Joanne to handle. One call the family got early on was from a woman we are going to call Jane, telling them that Lisa's body was about to be moved. The people involved in her death had put her in one place, and with all the searches going on, they decided to move her somewhere else. Don Young called the RCMP, and according to him, they said they had spoken with Jane already and told Don she was not reliable. So this does tell us that Jane went to the RCMP with her story, or they wouldn't have been aware of her enough to tell Don she wasn't reliable. We don't know why they dismissed Jane. As stories have come out about what happened to Lisa over the years, which we will get to, Jane's name, her real one, has come up as being in the know, in with the people responsible. So she may actually have had reliable information. Lisa's cell phone has never been found. Cell phone pings are fast becoming a true crime trope, but they were not as easy to analyze in 2002 like they are today. The data collected and stored by companies was not as detailed, and there were far fewer cell towers overall. That meant locating someone based on what tower the signal bounced off of wasn't a very narrow area. The information we do have is that our cell phone was traced to the Departure Bay area of Nanaimo, which is not terribly far from Bowen Road or the downtown or the house parties or any other point Lisa was confirmed to be. In September 2002, over two months after Lisa disappeared, the RCMP conducted their first land search for Lisa. All searches up to this point were organized by the family. 
As you can see, the family was not waiting around on the RCMP at any point. They went to the media when they didn't think the police were taking it seriously. They tracked down leads. They conducted their own searches. And another avenue they pursued was the use of psychics. The family did turn away those who seemed to show up wanting to make a buck or make a name for themselves. The psychics they did choose to work with gave them some leads on where to search, but it never brought any resolution. You can actually hear an interview with one of these psychics on Island Crime. Whether you or I personally believe in psychics or intuitive investigations isn't the discussion point here. The point is that the family used the psychics because they had to, just like they used searchers coming in from the colloquial First Nation because they had to. They made their own posters because they had to. Joanne was talking to people on the street that she never met before because she had to. If they didn't do these things, how much of an investigation would have been done for Lisa back in 2002? The RCMP is always more tight-lipped about investigations than most U.S. police jurisdictions. So we don't know what they did or did not do in those early days. The family did not feel like they were getting enough information from the RCMP. Things like, where did Christopher William Adair say Lisa got out of the car? They didn't get the information on tips that came in about where and when people may have seen the Jaguar that night. They wanted and felt they needed this information so they could search more effectively, but they were not getting it. And then when they would get information from the RCMP, it would occasionally contradict something Joanne was told by someone in the community, and she wasn't sure who to believe. But for every frustration they had with the RCMP, they did have a positive experience with the community and with the media who were eager to get Lisa's case out there. Vigils were well attended, and Lisa's missing persons posters stayed up until they were tattered and faded and then replaced. People wanted to help, and not just in Nanaimo, but in surrounding towns, including where Chris Adair's family lived, and they were putting up flyers everywhere. In 2009, Crime Stoppers filmed a reenactment, which was something Joanne had asked about repeatedly over the years. She was initially told it wasn't necessary since the case already had enough media coverage. Joanne then tried to go over the investigators' heads and went directly to Crime Stoppers to ask them, and they said they can't do a reenactment without the investigator from the case initiating it. And that didn't happen until 2009. The point of these reenactments is to jar people's memories about something they may have seen, possibly something they didn't realize was important. The closer to the time of the event this reenactment is done, the better, because people's memories are fresher. But it's still worth it to do it at any point. The reenactment cast a likeness of Lisa that even her father said was pretty spot on. But the person cast to play Christopher William Adair, the last person known to see Lisa Marie Young, didn't look much like him at all. The main thing was how he dressed. Chris has been described by everyone as preppy. 
but the person playing him in this reenactment was dressed in a tank top. His pants were a little baggy. He had a ball cap on with the sunglasses resting on the visor. He had visible tattoos. Pretty much think about preppy and think about the opposite of it, and that's what you're getting here. The car, which was a maroon or burgundy Jaguar with distinctive square headlights, was played by a Ford Focus. It definitely limits the benefits of the reenactment when the people and vehicles cast don't match the circumstances someone would have seen out and about that night. Obviously, finding that type of Jaguar was going to be nearly impossible, and they did show a picture of what it looked like, a similar make, model, color on the screen, but they did not show a photograph of Chris Adair. At the time, his name had not yet been made public. Another issue with the Crime Stoppers segment isn't a huge deal for the investigation or for getting leads, but I do think it was a mistake that was hurtful to the family. We have spent this entire episode talking about how Joanne and Don sprang into action on Sunday. They were trying to get the police to look for Lisa immediately. They had family who drove hours to Nanaimo to search and on and on. The Crime Stoppers video. I'm just going to play it for you here. This is the last time anyone has ever seen Lisa Marie Young. She was reported missing by her family to the Nymarsen Peace several days later, and after an exhaustive search... Yeah, you heard that. The Crime Stoppers video said the family reported Lisa missing several days later. That is absolutely untrue. It is the complete opposite of what happened, and the RCMP has confirmed to Laura Palmer on the Island Crime Podcast that it was untrue. I know I sound like I am Monday morning quarterbacking, backseat driving, whatever, the Crime Stoppers or the investigation. I get that that's what it sounds like, and it's not necessarily the intention of why I'm bringing this up. My actual point in going through all of this is to give you an idea of various points over the years where the family hit a point of frustration and pain. Long-term missing persons cases are filled with these moments for families. Long-term unsolved murder cases are as well. So when you see someone advocating for their loved one's case online, on social media, and they don't do it perfectly, or they say something that sounds rude, or they snap at someone else, let's have some grace. The journey they walked to get where they are is peppered with indignities, big and small, and a lot of pain. They are doing their best, and we should be our best in return when we are communicating with them. And if you think I'm talking about the Maura Murray case, you might be right. But that's not the only case I've seen this happen. And something else that kind of links what I'm talking about to the Maura Murray case now that I'm thinking about it is something else families deal with a lot, and that is the discovery of remains. In a perfect world, the authorities will contact the family of missing people in the area immediately. And a lot of times they do. The call is simply to say, remains were found, it'll be in the news, but they're clearly a man or they're too old, so we know they're not your loved one. Sometimes the family will be told, you know what, we don't know yet, we'll keep you posted. Those calls are hard enough. 
but the worst are when the call doesn't come from the authorities, but rather the media looking for a comment. And that happened to the Youngs. In 2009, remains were found in the area, and the family got a call from a journalist looking for a comment before the police had ever called them. They were told the story was going to air about the discovery of the remains. So the media knew enough to run a story, but the family had not been contacted. There was open speculation that these remains were Lisa's, but the family was not contacted. The remains were not Lisa's, but the family did not get a call about it until after the story aired, which had led them to sleepless nights. The family's loss of Lisa has been compounded by questions about the investigation, but from what I have been told, the current lead investigators on the case who took the file in 2018 are great. They're dedicated to finding Lisa and finding out what happened, and they also have experience with cold cases. While they still hold back a lot of information that the advocates for Lisa think would be useful to publicize, there aren't the same concerns anymore that the RCMP is not doing enough. When the current investigators took over the case, though, two to three key people had passed away. One is someone who has not been named publicly, but his name comes up in tips and leads as someone who knows what happened that night. Another person was Dallas Hulley, who was the last person other than Christopher Adair to talk with Lisa that night. In March 2018, Dallas was walking down the street. It was very late at night, something like 1 a.m. According to the woman he was with, he took a step or two into one of the lanes to pick something up, and that's when he was struck by a car that did not see him in time. In 2017, Joanne Young died at the age of 54 from kidney issues, She had advocated for Lisa right up until she couldn't do it anymore. And after Joanne's death, others took on continuing the work in this case. Lisa's aunt and grandmother gave statements for the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And her Aunt Carol is also the only New Chanak representative present when the final report from the inquiry was delivered to the Prime Minister in Gatineau, Quebec. Cindy, the listener who brought this case to me, is also someone who dedicated herself to Lisa's case. She is in contact with journalists, podcasters, people who knew Lisa and or Chris Adair, and even the RCMP investigators as she tries to carry on the work Joanne and Don Young started. She is an admin on the Facebook group that raises awareness for this case, and I will also link that in the description box. I definitely recommend joining. So let's get into what happened to Lisa. None of the theories or rumors are good. This is being investigated as a homicide. I'm not going to delve into the details of the rumors that have no foundation. They are out there. They are graphic. Instead, let's talk about what people who were willing to go on record said happened. One was a witness named Bob who came forward after he cleaned up his own life and was living sober. You can hear his interview on episode 10 of Island Crime. It is called Bob's Story, so it's easy to find. Bob's story has a lot of details, and he has a connection to both Don Young as a co-worker 
and the people he says were involved in Lisa's death through his own drug use. And yes, people as in more than one. Bob is not the first person to name the same four to six people involved in Lisa's death and or the cover-up. So if you remember the woman we are calling Jane, the one who called Don to tell him Lisa's body was being moved, she is one of the people Bob names. The others named, well, one was a known drug dealer in the Nanaimo area and the others are connected to him. The basic story Bob told was one that he was told. He was not there. He was told that Lisa was drugged for the purposes of raping her and recording it. The intention was not to kill her, but rather to mock it for the sake of the recording, basically a fake snuff film. However, things went too far and Lisa was killed. Afterwards, her body was kept in one place and then later moved. Bob's story wasn't that vague, though. He took Laura Palmer from Island Crime to the house where Lisa was killed. He said Lisa was first buried in the nature preserve behind the house, and then he heard Lisa's body was moved south of Nanaimo by about 30 minutes and left in a mine shaft. So anyone who looks into cold cases like this You get used to hearing a lot of rumors around town and what people think happened and what they heard happened and what their brother's cousin's best friend's dog said. But I'm going to say that this case is a little different because it's the same few names over and over again. I'm not going to name them. The police have not. The only reason I'm naming Christopher Adair is because he's been named in Parliament as the driver of the car even though his name has been reported elsewhere even before that. A few years ago, I remember when another podcast got a privacy complaint for naming someone involved in a case. It was case file, and I remember it clearly because it became a discussion point for those of us who try to be mindful in what we present on our podcasts. At what point do people have privacy in a news story? I just didn't remember that it was this case that episode was about until I started looking into it. The privacy complaint was over the use of Christopher Adair's name and said his name and other criminal charges mentioned in the episode were not public. The charges are public, but maybe his name wasn't at the time. Regardless, the complaint was supposedly signed Chris. If it did come from Chris Adair, it is the closest he has ever come to speaking out about the case. His current location, as far as I know, is unknown, though there is some evidence he lived in Japan for a while and he may still be there. However, he may be back in Canada. This year, the RCMP has announced that they have gotten a lot of new tips and leads recently in the case and that these tips led to a search. That search happened at the same house where Bob told Laura Palmer Lisa was killed. The search was using ground-penetrating radar and a cadaver dog. What, if anything, was found has not been released. It might not have only been Bob's tip that led them to the house, though. A neighbor also came forward to say they saw something odd many years ago. They noticed what looked like a body in a hammock, and then days later there was digging on the property. Obviously, they didn't really think it was a body at the time, or I would imagine they would have called the police. 
in hindsight, they realized what they may have seen. And that's how it goes with these cold cases. We never know what is going to spark someone's memory. So we present as much information as we can with the hope that happens. And someone realizes that weird thing they saw may be more significant than that. The search of the property shows that this is an active investigation. If you have any information on the disappearance of Lisa Marie Young in late June 2002 in Nanaimo, British Columbia, call the Nanaimo RCMP at 250-754-2345. And if you are calling from outside of the country, let's say Japan, don't forget to put the country code 1 in front of that number. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. 